If you're enjoying today's program, please tell your friends. It's the Jim Chapman News Hour on 94.9 CHRW, your cure for corporate radio. And we're back. We're chatting here about our, our week gone past, <laughs> floods and a variety of other things. We welcome Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer to the program. Nice to see you both. And you. Uh, and today I want to begin, Bob, by asking you uh, to give us a little inside skinny on something here. In in the, the National Post today, there's a column by Michael Korn. I don't know if you saw it. No, I haven't yet. Well, Michael Korn is a radio TV and host and writer, and uh, he's kind of like Toronto's answer to Bob Metz, kind of. Yeah, I've, and, I've uh, met Michael Korn. Yes, I know you've been on his program. Yeah. Yes, and that's why I want to ask you. His, his column is about, essentially, is a very serious shot at the CBC, who wanted him to come on as a columnist, uh, for a panelist, rather. And at the very last minute, cancelled. And when he pressed them as to why, it came out that uh, they don't like him. And he was told, uh, "quote People here hate you." And his uh, the pitch of the column then is that this is typical CBC that they you know they're not interested in opinions other than their own. And he's, he's got a great line, something like he said years ago when people wanted to escape reality, they ran away to sea, and today they just run away to the CBC. <laughs> I just wondered if you could give us any... That would endear him yeah, to the CBC. If you yeah. could give us any insights, uh, do you think he's a man to be feared by the CBC? Well, my experience with Michael Korn, both as a guest on his show and uh, watching his show, is that he's one of the most politically incorrect commentators I've seen on TV in a long time. Uh, I find myself agreeing with him sometimes and not agreeing with him sometimes. Yeah. But he crosses certain lines that I wish I could sometimes <laughs> on a, on a, on well, what on for ex- Well, for example, I mean, people who've listened to you in this program for years will know that you're pretty fearless in stating your positions. What does Corn do that you uh, wish you could? Well, he'll broach racial issues in a way that I probably wouldn't. He'd be very blunt and almost uh, what you might even call very politically incorrect, mm-hmm. the way he might state something, with mm-hmm. a guest right there on the show talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I even remember when he had alternate political parties on. Uh, one of the guests there was uh, from the communist Marxist-Leninist party. First question he asked him is, uh, so when are you guys going to open up the gulags? <laughs> you know? And that's kind of his style. Now, I would have loved to ask that question, too, but I wouldn't. <laughs> that, that's not my style, right? Exactly. But... Um, what did they say? I by can the way? see the discomfort. Uh, he said, "Not." He, he joked, jokingly said, uh, "Not, not quite yet." Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. That's for the future. But um, nevertheless, uh, I can see the discomfort CBC might have with Corn uh, because he's not the kind of guy that's going to toe the corporate line, if you know what I mean. They're not supposed to have a corporate line, though, are no. they, Jeff? Aren't they supposed <laughs> to be the voice of the Canadian people from sea to, sea to shining sea? Well, I guess the, they are an alternative to um, private corporation media, if you like, and uh, it occurred to me, I was thinking about, uh, you know, what are the odds that Judy Rebick would be invited into the National Post to uh, to participate, and I think it's fairly low. I was amazed when uh, Conrad Black hired Linda McQuaig for the National Post mm-hmm. when it first started, and I thought, good on you, and good on Linda for, for trying it, uh, but really, um, you know, left and left is right, and uh, left is left and right is right, never the twain shall meet, unless they're on the same twack. <laughs> well, is the... <laughs> <laughs> is it appropriate though for uh, for a government to fund uh, a search for a, a supposed search for balance? I'm not sure that the search needs to be conducted, but is it appropriate for a government to fund that? Well, I think it is, and I guess in the states the uh, sort of equivalent would be uh, national public radio, which is funded, I believe, largely by contributions. Um, but in Canada, uh, we've always had this this national broadcaster going back to whenever it was the 30s or whatever, and it seems like with the people who like the CBC, they really like it, in, including me, uh, and it really is totally different than uh, than anything 
thing that you're in the private sector, which is fine. Uh, I, I, I think that they would, I suppose, have a hard time finding um, sponsors for some of the programs that they run, just because, again, the voice that they tend to speak from is clearly left-wing, no question about it. Just out of curiosity, uh, yeah. the CBC, were they talking about radio or TV? No, it was television. It was television, yeah. okay, because I know Michael's been on radio and TV. Mm-hmm. And, and TV seems quite a bit different because it's always been commercial. They've always had commercials on it. And it does, like I've, I've read from time to time about the popularity of CBC radio, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the television. Um, and I, you know, frankly, don't have nearly the loyalty to the television station that I do to the radio because um, to me it's, it's very similar to all the other uh, network channels. Yeah. Um, you know, I watch Rick Mercer. Um, that's about it. And the rest of the commies. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. I just, could, I just simply could not resist that. I, I, I want to change me the trouble. Yeah, I want to change the focus a little bit here too to uh, um, something that I had mentioned a moment or two ago on the show here about the the funds are going to flow again to the Palestinian people. The uh, EU, the US, the UN, and Russia, who are the, referred to as the quartet of the mediators in this uh, ongoing um, um, funding dilemma over there. Um, have decided that they're going to get money, try to get money in on the ground to the people and bypass the government. Uh, the government, of course, was ostracized after it refused to renounce its pledge to uh, destroy Israel and to uh, and its its approval of terrorism as a means to that end. Um, they were ostracized by most of the, um, the countries in the world. Um, and the point has been made, I've made the point really, that, they, um, that the people were perfectly free to elect any government they wanted, but you sometimes pay a price for that. If you elect a conservative government in Canada, you get the conservative policies and everything that goes with it. If you elect the Republicans in the United States, you get everything that goes with that. And if you elect Hamas in Palestine, you get the things that go with that. And part of it is, is this uh, opprobrium from the rest of the world. Do you think it's possible, do you think it's feasible that, that they'll be able to get money to the people and, and bypass the government? Is this the right thing to do? Jeff? Well, I, I guess I don't see harm in it uh, necessarily. Uh, and there's always this question in negotiations, uh, you know, when when do you play hardball and when do you sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, swallow your pride or, or sort of decide not to bite your lip or whatever you want to call it and sort of realize, okay, these guys are really annoying me, but I'm going to try to model good behavior and hopefully they will sort of buy into that. Um, so I guess it's a question from a tactical standpoint of whether uh, it's better to try and keep buy-in amongst the Palestinian people so that they're more likely to feel uh, part of the world stage and more likely to continue to participate in whatever form of peace negotiation or uh, mediation uh, is going at any given time, uh, or whether it's better, as you point out, to say, look, you voted for these guys, here's what they say, we don't support that, so we're not supporting you until you vote in a new government, um, you know, and, and it it's a question of trying to guess what's in the minds of people. Well, how will they react? Will they react saying, well, fine, screw you? Or will they react by saying, oh, I guess we better elect a different government? Um, as far as morality of it, I guess I don't see any harm in trying to get money to people who seem to be pretty poor. Um, and how you do that without having it uh, channeled off into um, into uh, buying weapons to be used uh, for terrorism or whatever is the challenge. It's always been the challenge in Africa, for that matter. Bob, would you view it any differently than that? Well, personally, I wouldn't send a cent over there. I think it's a huge mistake to assume that they are justifiable to elect whatever government they want because they don't have a democratic base. Voting is not about democracy. I have to keep repeating that. You can't just bring the voting system into these societies that have no democratic history, no democratic traditions, no concepts of free will, of of interplay of choice, because that's where the power of everything comes from. I mean, from the dollar to everything you do in life comes from that power of free will. 
And that's what's constantly happening with governments there, is they're trying to thwart the will of the people. Nobody wants to starve. Nobody wants to be treated like an object, but that's what's going on over there. And if they continue to vote for it, uh, you know, there's a tremendous problem in, in the whole Mideast from, from um, all the areas around. And, of course, it's driven by a tremendous hatred of the Jewish state, of the West in general, you know. So I think we need to approach the thing a little bit differently than throwing money at it all the time. I had a discussion on the weekend with a friend of mine, an American, who's a New Yorker born and bred and now lives in Chicago and, and says that's given him a, an even more interesting um, point of view on the country. He said he believes, and this, this guy is a very patriotic American, let me say that up front, but he believes that the country, that country is in serious difficulty, and in fact, he believes that we've already seen the beginning of the decline of America, of, of America yeah. because of their inability to deal with this issue of international terrorism, other than sort of the blather about the war against terror, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do something else, and they seem to have done so many things so ineptly. Uh, he was really quite sad, quite depressed about the whole thing when I talked to him. Uh, Jeff, do you, uh, when you look at what's happening, do you, do, you th- do you think we've passed any kind of divide there? Not necessarily. I think terrorism has always been around, uh, you know, as long as there have been overdogs and underdogs. The underdogs' uh, tactics are, are so-called terror, um, guerrilla-type ta- attacks. Well, let me ask just for a second. You said so-called terror. Why isn't, I mean, a terror attack's a terror attack, isn't terror, it? Terror is a word that's lost all meaning in the modern media. Like, what does terror mean? Is it terrifying to get a cruise missile uh, uh, struck in your apartment? Yeah, probably. Do we call cruise missiles terror weapons? No. Um, you know, certainly the overdogs uh, have been able to... To, to put a, a stigma onto the tactics used by the underdogs, uh, to me it just doesn't mean anything. It's like weapons are all supposed to scare you into stopping doing whatever you're doing and, and go along with what the other guy wants. Uh, why, why we would assign a moral quality to one side or the other saying, well, you guys are somehow morally less justified in doing what you're doing because you can't afford the nice weapons that the other guys have. Um, so if it, as far as the tactic of terror, I would say that the Americans used terror against the British uh, 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 in, uh, in the Revolutionary War, you know, is the same kind of strike-and-run type tactics. As far as the goals they have in mind, we can talk about the morality of those, and obviously anybody who's got a goal in mind of wiping out Israel, that I would say is immoral and evil. Uh, but the way they go about it, again, to me, it's just that whole word has just been uh, what about the argument? That, what about the argument that much of the world wants to wipe out the, the Palestinian state? Well, because that's what they believe. Yeah, and that's and that's the problem. And to me, it all comes back to uh, to carrots and sticks. How do you persuade a young person growing up in a in a Palestinian refugee camp not to become a suicide bomber? How do you persuade them that they would rather go out and sell stuff door to door? How do you persuade them that this is a better way forward for them? And it's it's a combination of carrots and sticks. That obviously, on the one hand, you have to have a credible way of saying, uh, you know, if you do the the uh, um, fighting stuff, bad things are going to happen to you and yours. On the other hand, here's an alternative. If you do, if you go with um, capitalism, for instance, and, and uh, a commercial economy, you could have a good life. You could raise children who will be healthy, you know, who have a future, who can achieve great things. Um, to me, it's a question of balancing in the mind of that person, which is the better way to go. And, uh, you know, I guess one thing that I think is also unfortunate about the use of, of terror as this war on terror is that it implies somehow that terrorists are not normal people. There's something different about them because they're willing to go out and kill themselves for a cause. And somehow there's this idea that you can't reason with them. You can't possibly hope to understand where they're coming from. And from everything I've ever read about terrorists through the years, whether it was the Israeli terrorists after World War II, uh, you know, going back uh, anywhere 
where you want to f- find it, um, there are, they are normal people who choose to do things that are different than what we can understand because their life experience is so different. So to me, it's a question of how do you persuade this person when they're thinking about, oh, I wonder what I'll do with my life. How do you persuade them to say, I think I'd like to go out and, uh, you know, get some computer background and try and, you know, write software. Things seem to be going well in India. Maybe I'll go there. Uh, as opposed to all I can see as a way forward is going out and strapping explosives on myself and trying to kill as many people as I can. Bob? Yeah, I don't even know where to start. Are we talking about the decline of America, America's foreign policy, or the situation? <laughs> well, I'm going to all part of the package. You know, it, it's, uh, um, you know, I remember reading even as long ago as Ayn Rand, I'm going to paraphrase a quote she said about America's foreign policy, and I think it went something like this, quote, America's foreign policy is so grotesquely irrational that most people think there must be something sensible behind it, <laughs> end quote, right? And this has been a problem for eons with America's foreign policy. It has been utterly inconsistent. It has been... uh, I think that's almost the key. You have to have a consistent way of looking at things. And then, of course, you have to always present not just economic trade, but you've got to be selling ideas. And I think that's what the war that we're currently in is all about. Um, As far as trying to persuade people in Palestinian countries and countries like that... uh, they're not in an environment where persuasion is permitted. That's that's a moot point. You can't even talk about that. I was just clipping a bunch of uh, clippings from the National Post. Over the last two or three weeks, they've been doing a lot of in-depth articles about what's going on over there. Mm -hmm. And the suicide cause is just amazing. Uh, They they discussed the history of what Khomeini did in 79, where he recruited something like 52,000 suicide people. uh, What they used to do was uh, send uh, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids in the front of the lines to clear Clear the mines mines with their bodies because animals were too smart to do this. They Mm -hmm. tried it with animals, but the animals were smart enough to run away, which tells you something about the epistemology of the human being, is that we can be programmed to self-destruct. It's totally irrational. It's totally driven by, ironically, completely uh, materialistic uh, concerns, people that th- people think they can take into the non-material world mm-hmm. with, the, the, with the virgins and everything else, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, any any country that's thinking like that and can can recruit tens of thousands of people who are rushing to die for their cause, you got to be afraid of a country like that, especially when they're talking nuclear. Well, our, our, and, and our they young see men their own deaths as a reward in many ways, and that's how their leaders are talking. Our young men rushed to death in World War One and World War Two. An entirely, I don't think they did. No, I think it was an entirely different situation. They weren't rushing to death to meet their God or anyone. They were fighting to defend their country. And uh, you know, I just heard that's an interesting comment you made. Okay, I, I, wanna, I want you to hold that thought yeah. for a second. We do have to pause. Okay. We'll be right back. The left, right, and center. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, with us today on the Jim Chapman News Hour. And we're back, uh, Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer. Bob, you were you were you were doing something when we left. Yeah, we were talking about the concept of our soldiers voluntarily dying and stuff like this. You know, I heard somebody. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's exactly the same, but no. what I what I am saying is that even in a society that we hold to be as rational as ours, if you go back to the early and heady days of World War One and World War Two, young men were signing up. Now, were they signing up for glory? Uh, yeah, but they also knew that there was very real risk here, and and they were signing up to some of them to defend. In their countries well, and so on. In any in any conflict, you're going to have two sides, and each side, if they feel strong enough about their position, may be willing to die for their mm-hmm. point of view. Uh, I don't know what that means in terms of willing to die, because I think it's a totally different thing when you're talking about a conscripted army and a and a volunteer 
uh, militia of any sort. Well, I think it's a little different when you, when you are conscripting children and sending them out, uh, uh, well, and, and you know they're going to die. To me, there is a substantive well, absolutely, difference there. Absolutely, and it's also the purpose for which you are fighting. Um, offense is basically always the guy that's in the wrong. The guy that swings first is the bully. The guy who's fighting back is the person fighting to defend themselves. And, yeah, I would be willing to, d- to die... To defend my life, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or someone you love—that's implicit, yeah. or some, or yeah, some, or yeah. the life of someone I love, or the yeah. guy, or—and this but, is very, very important from a psychological point of view. But I would never view, sacrifice the, the guy next to you in the line, too. Right, jump on the on the uh, grenade, uh, and I guess uh, as far as to, to pull this back to American foreign policy for a minute, I, 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 although they're in a, a hole in Iraq, and I see George's popularity is continuing to decline for that and other reasons. Um, I don't—he's down almost to Kretchen levels. <laughs> from the top to the bottom in both cases. Um, that said, I, I don't know that they're doing things a lot differently than they have historically. And I've just been reading a book about Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, and sort of the splendid little wars that uh, that they had, and uh, the saber-rattling everywhere and walk softly and carry a big stick. I think that's been uh, American foreign policy for a long, long time. The Monroe Doctrine, you know, that uh, all of North and South America are our sphere of influence and no European powers, powers can come in here and so on. Um, so I don't know that much has changed there. The other part about it, too, is that really... Well, before you go any further, I just want to say I think it has changed substantially. I think if you if you study the life of T.R., this was a guy who believed implicitly in in the moral soundness of the American way. And I'm not yep. sure that American leaders today have that same absolute no. deep, deep-seated and deep-rooted faith. And for one reason, they don't have as much justification for that faith as, as Roosevelt had. There's, he, he was the guy, don't forget, he was the trust buster. He was the guy who took on big business yes. and, oh. and, and brought it to heel and said, America can be a great country by fo- by following the ideals, by, by practicing what we preach. Well, that's true. In fact, uh, uh, there was an article I read a week or two ago about uh, Standard Oil, and of course that he broke up uh, Standard Oil as a, a huge trust, the Rockefeller Trust, and uh, I hadn't appreciated that Esso, uh, the, the name Esso comes from S-O, Standard Oil, mm-hmm. and uh, that I guess it was in 74 that they were ordered to change their name to Exxon in the United States, but uh, this article pointed out that uh, the parts that had been broken up in the early 1900s as a result of the trust busting and concern about monopoly practices by oil companies, those companies have all pretty well merged back together mm-hmm. again, um, and so we see see the massive control they have over, uh, over oil prices and uh, what we pay at the pump. Uh, uh, no, I, I, that's why I'm reading about Roosevelt, because he's such an interesting guy for standing up for stuff like that. Having said that, uh, as far as the moral justification for things they did, you know, they had the, the war with Spain where they took the Philippines and Cuba and stuff, pretty much because they wanted them. But uh, again, the rationale was it was going to bring democracy to these places and it would be great for the people living there and all that. Um, that stuff hasn't changed that much. But the other thing that hasn't changed is I don't think that they're losing a lot more people than they were back then either. Uh, you know, when you talk about terrorism in the United States, how many how many American citizens have been killed in terror attacks in the last five, uh, since 9-11? I don't know if any have. Uh, you know, and it was, certainly there's been endless media t- attention put to it, the endless money poured into it, how many hundreds of billions of dollars. But I, as far as I know, no American has died in a terrorist attack since 9-11. In, in, in the United States. So are we, yeah. are, are, are we globally in North America more at risk than we, they were 100 years ago? I, I don't know that we are. Article in the paper today says Al-Qaeda's coming to get us in Canada for sure. They always say that. Coming to get us. Yeah, I've been saying that consistently. It's like their terror alert is orange or red. goes back and forth all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't mean to minimize the efforts of people who have made that happen. It's not that Al-Qaeda is, doesn't want to. You know, they've been very effective in the United States in, uh, in counter-terror in a lot of ways, in spite of the fumbling, in spite of Iraq and so on. Can't minimize that. But I don't see uh, the American uh, empire starting to fall uh, at this point because of Iraq. On that cheerful note, we'll pause and come right <laughs> back. There's more to come on the Jim Chapman News Hour.
Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, Jim Chapman with you today. And Jeff just mentioned something in the break, and I want to ask you guys about this, too. That, this new movie, Flight, whatever it is. 93, Flight, I think. Flight 93, about the... Uh, uh, the airliner that crashed into a field in Pennsylvania that supposedly was on its way to, to hit the White House, and they have reconstructed with fragments of cockpit recorders and cell phone conversations and so on. They've uh, supposedly reconstructed what happened. Uh, I, I have not seen that movie. I have absolutely no interest in seeing that movie. Uh, in my case, because I don't, I don't think I need to see it. I don't think it uplifts my life in any way. And also, I'm a little suspicious of it, too. I think they must have had to make some pretty large jumps in filling in the blanks. And and I'm a little offended that they are presenting this as though somebody had a camera on the plane, you know, and this is exactly what happened. It just bothers me. And, Jeff, you said that you you were not anxious to see it. No, I have no interest in seeing it either, although I I recognize that from all the evidence, the the passengers on that plane uh, overcame the hijackers and, uh, you know, were heroes, I would say, um, and and deserve to be memorialized. I noticed that uh, Neil Young wrote a song uh, um, honoring them, um, for example. Uh, So I think that, that I don't mean to minimize their, what they did at all, but on the other hand, a movie like that, somehow it seems a bit tawdry. Somehow it's like commercializing a tragedy, like somebody's going to make a lot of money off this theoretically, and I, I don't really want to contribute to that. And also it sounds depressing. I, I, I've tried to avoid the the images of 9-11. I've tried to avoid seeing the planes going into the towers. Every time it's been on TV, I've looked away. I just don't need to see it. I know about it. You mm-hmm. know, I know as much as I need to know, but to see it is just too visceral and just too painful and depressing. And the movie movie to me would be just like poking a raw wound like i just don't need to see that bob you feel like you, you uh, any plans um, to see it or have you seen it no i, I put it in the uh, uh you know the bird flu movie category mm-hmm. I, I movies that interest me are movies that really have a principle or moral or a good story or something to teach you that you can take away with you and this, uh, this purportedly though teaches uh, uh, us the value of heroism doesn't well it? Uh, not really not when it's done in a documentary style what's the lesson you have to draw it yourself if you can if a movie's directed well enough i give them kudos but it's not the kind of movie i would watch um just because basically i already know how it ends <laughs> mm. it's like king kong i didn't see king kong either because i know the monkey dies <laughs> i don't i don't want to see that again i'm being a bit facetious but it, it reminds but me last night i was uh, one of my favorite things is uh is uh sitting and clicking random search on Wikipedia and uh, mm-hmm. just seeing all these random articles come up and uh, yesterday an article came up that was the um, the wor- world's worst disasters by death toll and it's like I don't need to read that it's like, I'm moving on I do not need <laughs> to know push the button again <laughs> spin push, the dial again push the button again <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier today that I've been reading some stuff by uh, Richard Lamb are any of you familiar with him the former Democratic governor of Colorado no, he, he's written. Well, I, I commend him to you. He's he's worth a he's worth a little. He's in Wikipedia too, by the way. Um, he's worth a search. This is a guy who, since he left political office, has been uh, speaking out on a variety of things, including uh, uh, the, the the coming disaster, the um, baby boomer related disaster in healthcare around the world, and the fact that we need to have some serious some serious discussions about where we want our countries to go, where we want our nations to go in the West, and, and uh, some serious debates on, on important issues. Uh, one of them, he talked about uh, immigration, and he's, he offered a seven-point plan to destroy the United States, and he offered these seven points to do this. You know, you open your borders, you do all the things, essentially everything that's on his list, America has done. 
and uh, it's kind of a sad and and uh, and depressing finish. You know, by the end of it, he's saying basically, well, so if you want to destroy the country, then go and do that. And apparently, when he gave this speech, and it does say what, where it was, I just can't remember now, that there was just absolute silence in the room. Nobody nobody said a word. And I've stunned. said that. I've said that about the Liberal Party. I said it about Trudeau. I said it about Gretchen that they actively exist to destroy this country, and they've. Follow those same kinds of policies. Many it's of interesting them, though you talk about, uh, about population it's still the and the French English thing, you the know, boomer crisis and so behind. on. I was, I was surprised to hear on the radio that the population of Russia is declining by seven hundred thousand people a year. Uh, that's amazing. I, I've heard Vladimir Putin talking about the need to have incentives for people to have babies and all this stuff. Uh, well, that's one of the great challenges of this next century too. Is going to be birth rates because the the nations who reach a quote, comfortable level, if that indeed is what's happening, the nations of the West, where people are have not only the leisure, but have the money to indulge themselves, to have smaller families, to, to get more out of life, if you will, or put more in, whichever they choose, that those countries are rapidly going to be swamped by countries that, 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 that don't share the same values, and... Uh, are reproducing at record rates. And one of the great challenges, so many writers have said, of this, this century we're in now, is going to be how we, how we deal with that. What do you do with that when you've got a third world that will be literally teeming with people? Although they say we're reaching... Why don't they try prosperity? Why do they always opt for poverty and suffering and all that? It's because of the mentality. It's the, it's the beliefs that people have, and they have to, we have to export ideas is what we need to export. Well, one of the things Lamb talked you know, about was the victim mentality, that oh, the victim absolutely. mentality has just destroyed people around the world. It's doing that, it in Canada. It's not my fault. It's you somehow talk to Joe Armstrong, historian, Canadian historian. Yeah. He, that's yeah. his biggest thing, you yeah. know, that how Canada has just steeped itself in the victim mentality. And, yeah, I don't uh, think Canada's where, where the problem lies, particularly though. And I'm struck but the that fact China, that it affects for instance, a country like us, well, we're supposed to be at the top chi- of the China, food for chain. example. It's interesting that, and I don't know whether whether you could have achieved this without a, without a totalitarian government. But China dramatically reduced their birth rate mm-hmm. quite a while ago, and it's the country that could have been the biggest problem, if you like, if they continue to to have kids like crazy. Uh, on the other hand. I look at a country like India, and it's always hard to tell how much of a change is really occurring, but we're hearing that it's becoming high-tech, that well, we uh, did it with call centers are all there and all that Jeff. stuff. We didn't have to... Uh Kill babies because we tried prosperity. Stuff you know, like we that. took your your uh, right. prescription, and people <laughs> said, "Yeah, I really don't need ten kids." You know, my grandfather had ten kids, but I just do not need that. I want to have some fun in well, life. Well, prosperity is a hard thing to argue against. We're out of time. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, both. Always Thanks. a pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you being with us today. Uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer on left, right, and center, as they are most Wednesdays, and we do thank them for their attendance. Uh, because we are keeping track, you know. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 with the next edition of the News Hour. Hope you can join us. We'll take another look at the news of the day and try to make some kind of sense out of it. As I said, uh, how about 11 tomorrow? In the meantime, get out there and enjoy this day. Take a deep breath or two. That is if the pollen doesn't get you. Meantime, this is Jim Chapman saying, please take care of each other, mind how you go, and God bless. Bye-bye.